Welcome to the Grace High School Podcast. This semester, we are continuing in our series, In Defense of the Faith. I was in Colorado this past weekend, and uh, I was driving through uh, Rocky Mountain National Park on, I I think, Thursday, was that right? On Friday, uh, when I got news that that somebody had been shot here in Wichita Falls, and, uh, and so I spent several hours kind of trying to gather information. Me and another guy from Wichita Falls were kind of on our phones uh, trying to figure out what happened. And of course, over the next 24, 48 hours, kind of started to get a lot of the details. And then, of course, in the last couple of days, we've heard even more of those details come out, things like the motive and stuff like that. Um, and I just, wanted, I just want to tell you guys, uh, for me as a youth pastor and, and as somebody who works in ministry, and, and I can, I think, speak for a lot of guys and girls that work in ministry, um, this is not the type of thing that we ever want to have to address. This is not the type of thing that we ever want to have to talk about. Um, And when something like this does happen, uh, we really want to be able to get up here and say the right thing. We want to get up here and be able to say uh, something that'll kind of help everybody get through it, something that everybody uh, can maybe understand it a little better, and and just just to be able, like I said, to say the right thing. And I'll be honest, I've I've been at a loss for words uh, for the most part uh, in the last few days, not really... Um, knowing exactly what to say to something like this. Because the truth is, uh, when things like this happen, there's no good reason for it. And and we don't have uh, a full understanding of why it happened, and we may never have a full understanding of why it happened. But I want to say a couple things about that. First of all, um, it's okay uh, if we as Christians sometimes have questions and don't have answers to them. And so if, if you struggle with uh, doubt in the midst of something like this. And, uh, you know, in this series, we're going to, uh, down the road, we're going to be asking the question and, and trying to address the question, why does God let bad things happen, right? Why do, if, if God is good, why do, why do people ha- experience and endure pain and suffering? So if you're struggling with a question like that, I want you to know that's okay. You're not alone, um, and, and your faith is not weak, and you're not a, a bad Christian. You're not in danger of not being a Christian or anything like that. Uh, it's okay to ask those questions. It's okay to wrestle through those things. Um, and so, so if you, you are wrestling through some of those things and you want to talk, please come find me. Uh, come find Macy or my wife or one of the SBF leaders, Adam's here. Um, please come talk to us uh, because we would love to talk to you and, and help you kind of walk through that. But it's okay to have doubts. But uh, the other things that I want to say about that are uh, this sort of brings about the question of, man, how could somebody uh, do something like that? And, and, um, and you know, we, we've, I've heard the question like, could he, could he have ever been a Christian, or could a Christian ever do something like this? And, and the answer is, yes, a Christian can do something like this, right? Um, you know, we, we as Christians are not perfect, and so I'm not, I'm not going to try and speak to whether or not uh, the, the, uh, the guy that did this is a believer, um, or what's going to happen to him. I'm not going to try and speak to that, but I do know um, that he is not outside of the reach of grace, that God uh, certainly can forgive something like this. And, and I also know that, uh, that we all need forgiveness every bit as bad as he does, right? And, and so hopefully no one in here has ever uh, done something like that, but the, the Bible says that, that if we have or if we do, um, that there's forgiveness for us, and that, that what we uh, think about and what we uh, do in our hearts is reflective of um, where his actions came from as well. And so, so we are uh, sin- sinners in need of grace just as much as he does, and then as for the victim uh, and her family and the, and the family of the other girl who's recovering now, uh, all we can do at this point now is pray. And like George said, we can support them, things like going to their funeral and, 
and uh, continuing to, to pray for them and lift them up in our prayers and surround them with love and, and hope, hopefully continue to point them to the hope uh, that we have in Jesus, that there is a future uh, in our eternal, our eternal life in Christ where we won't experience stuff like this anymore. And so that's the, that's the hope that we hold on to, the hope that we want to give to people who are going through stuff like that. So again, come talk to me if you, if you want to talk about this um, any further. If you've got questions, please find one of us, one of your leaders, and we'd love to talk to you about it. So, uh, all right, so we're going to get into the lesson for tonight. Um, and so uh, we're continuing on in this, this series called In Defense of the Faith, as I said. And tonight, the question that we're looking at is, how can we prove the existence of God? So real quick, what I want to do is raise your hand if you've either thought about this, asked this question, or had somebody else ask you this question. Okay, yeah, this is, this is a pretty common question. It's, it's right at the forefront uh, of, of, of our social sort of conversation because uh, civilizations and societies for, for as long as people have been around have been uh, answering and asking this question, right? They've been asking, is there a God? And if there is, how can we prove him? Um, or how can we prove that he doesn't exist, right? And so, so societies have been addressing this question uh, for as, as long as, as humans have been around. And so it's not uncommon for people to, to ask this question. If you've asked this question again, that doesn't make you a bad Christian. If you've wrestled with this as a, as a believer, that's okay. You're not, you're not crazy. You're not alone. Um, but what we want to talk about tonight is how do we address this question? And so uh, here's what, what tonight will look like. We'll, we'll start with the question of how can we pr- uh, prove the existence of God. So we'll take that question and we'll kind of break it down and we'll figure out uh, if we need to maybe reword it. What, what, what are we going to define within this question and how are we going to address the question itself? And then we're going to move into to a section where we're going to look at a couple of arguments against God. Now, t- tonight is, is I'm, I'm going to try and, and get this pretty quick and pretty tight. We're, this is not going to include everything that we could talk about in, in this lesson. So there will be a lot of things that don't get addressed. And what I want to do is save a little bit of time at the end for questions. If you guys have questions, maybe we can answer now. Maybe we can get to them at another time as well. So, so we will have a, a time at the end for questions. So we're not going to get to all of the arguments against God, but, but I will present a couple of them and we'll kind of work within those. Um, Next, we're going to move on to what I'm, I'm just calling the religion of science, and you'll see why I'm uh, calling it that and what we're, what we're talking about when we get there. And then we're going to move into the, the arguments for God. So this is really uh, where we want to hang out tonight is, is in the arguments for God. How can we, the question is, how can we prove the existence of God? So these are really the answers that we're looking for. And then finally, we'll finish on what it looks like to live in confidence with these answers and, uh, and what it looks like to, to continue maybe to wrestle with this question in a healthy way. And then, like I said, we'll have questions at the end. So as we begin, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at this question, how can we prove God? But first, we need to, we need to take a step back, and we need to, we need to look at what, what do we mean by proof? When we say, how can we prove God, what do we mean by the word proof or, or prove? And so uh, what I'm gonna, what, the, the definition I'm going to use is, is my own, and it's a definition that I think covers really the way that we often mean it when we say, how can I prove the existence of God? And so this is what I mean. Uh, that which can confirm with certainty a proposed idea or belief. In other words, uh, we want something that can help us know something for certain. And that's what we mean to, by proving something. How can, we, how can we be certain of something, and where can we get that proof? What does that proof look like? And so that's the, that's the meaning of the word proof as we want to use it tonight. Okay? So if we want to know something for, for certain, with absolute certainty, um, how can we prove the existence of God? But that also begs the question, can we prove that God exists or doesn't exist? If we want to figure out, hey, I want to know with absolute certainty 
uh, how to prove God, we need to know, is it possible to prove with absolute certainty that God exists or does not exist? And, and the simple answer is no, right? Because, because there's no way that we can absolutely prove something that is supernatural uh, by natural means. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on. So, so we, we, we kind of have that question of, can we really prove that God exists or doesn't exist? And so it works both ways. And, and we won't get that 100% absolute certainty from either side. Now, one, one other kind of term that I wanna, want us to define is the burden of proof. What do I mean by burden of proof? Anybody ever heard the phrase burden of proof? And where does the burden of proof lie? If you're, if you're listening to a debate between an atheist and a theist, or you're uh, maybe partaking in that, and you, you, you might hear an atheist say, well, the burden of proof is on you. And what they mean by that is the Christian is the one making the claim. God exists. And so if I'm going to claim that God exists, then the atheist is going to go, okay, prove it, right? If, if I'm accusing somebody, if I, if I take my car to the mechanic and I think that he didn't fix my car and he charged me a lot of money for it and he kind of ripped me off and I want to take him to court, I've got to take him to court and say, that's what, that's what he did. He, he ripped me off, but then the burden of proof is on me. I'm accusing him and the court's not going to do anything to punish him unless I can prove it, right? So the burden of proof is on the accuser. It's on the one who's making the truth claim. So the burden of proof is on me as a believer to prove this. So that's what I mean by the burden of proof. So you'll hear that uh, if you're ever listening to or engaging in a debate uh, or a conversation about this from a non-believer. Hey, the burden of proof is on you to prove that God exists, okay? So now we're going to look back at the question, how can we prove the existence of God? How can we prove the existence of God? Well, we're going to reword this question a little bit as we move forward. So, so we're not going to ask specifically, how can we prove the existence of God? but rather, what evidence do we have for the existence of God, okay? So we're, we're really going to come at it more from that angle. What evidence do we have for the existence of God? So I want to start with this question. Are there good arguments against the existence of God? Are there, are there good arguments? Are there, is there sound logic to somebody saying, I don't think God exists? Well, sure there is. And so I, that might be shocking to you to hear me say that, but, but I mean, we, a lot of us in here raised our hand at the beginning and I said, have you ever struggled with this question? And so the reason is there are some good reasons why people don't believe in God, right? They can't see him, taste him, touch him, hear him, what's it, smell, smell him, right? So, that, so using their senses, they, they can't find God, right? And so, so they go, well, if I don't see him, if I don't, if I don't experience him otherwise, then, then he must not be there because until I, until I can uh, sense him, until I can feel him, he's not there. And that's, that's kind of what they'll say. And, and, we, and we might feel that way sometimes. And so, yeah, there's legitimate arguments against the existence of God. And we'll look at what those are here in a second. But I, I just want us to be able to look at this and go, okay, yeah, yeah, there's good, there's good arguments for this. And we're going to engage with them. But there's good arguments for the existence of God, too. And that's where we're going to get uh, towards the end. Uh, and so the first one that we're going to look at is, is exactly what I just said. It's that you, you, you can't prove that God exists. Right? We said earlier, we can never prove that God does exist, um, but, but likewise, they can't prove that he doesn't. Okay? But that is a legitimate argument that somebody will make. Hey, you can never prove the existence of God. Uh, they might ask it this way. Why believe in something that you can't see or that you can't sense? Right? So that, that's kind of the first uh, argument, the first point that somebody might make against the existence of God. Very basic, very foundational, and so that's where we're, we're starting. Why, why believe in something that I can't sense? Right? And the reality is, if, if we could prove God, then it wouldn't be belief. It wouldn't be faith. And we as Christians know that God wants our faith. He wants us to trust him. And there's not a lot of trust involved. 
when God puts himself visibly or, or tangibly in front of us and says, here I am, right? There's no faith in that. And so we as Christians kind of understand that God is inviting us to faith through this, but a non-believer would say, no, I need proof. And that's fair. Okay, uh, the, the second and, and sort of final argument that we're going to look at um, is, is a little bit all-encompassing. And, and I say that because this, this includes a lot of arguments or a lot of points that an atheist or a non-believer will make uh, against the existence of God, and it's this. Natural selection, and, and natural selection is a term that's really, uh, if, you, if you want, you can sort of uh, equate it to science. You could, you could almost just say science, but natural selection is the, the, the modern scientific term for what we're talking about. Natural selection is just uh, the means by which everything came to being. And so when you, you look at somebody like Richard Dawkins, who we'll, we'll grab a couple quotes from him later, one of the leading atheists in the world right now, and he's an evolutionary biologist, and what he studies and what he professes and claims and believes in and, and teaches is natural selection. And that's just the means by which our universe sort of came to be and then developed. And then, you know, if you've heard the term natural selection and evolution, that's strong, you know, survival of the fittest. So that's what we're talking about. Natural selection is sort of the scientific means by which everything came to, to, into being. Uh, so natural selection has given us an explanation for everything we once used God to explain. That's what we'll, we'll hear uh, from the atheists, that, hey, we don't need God anymore because we have science. The argument is religion was this, this archaic, sort of uh, old and outdated thing that people came up with before they had knowledge, before they had science, they came up with religion as a way to answer these really difficult questions. And so they saw the sun rise in the sky, and they went, oh, the sun god is up, and is gonna, he's going to give us warmth. And then the sun uh, sets, and now the moon goddess comes up, and she's you know, going to watch over us while we sleep, things like that. There was ways to explain things that they didn't understand. And then science came in and said, no, uh, that's not a god. That's actually just a star. And it's, uh, we orbit around that star by its gravity. And then there's actually a lot more of those stars and a lot more of uh, galaxies across a very vast and sort of endless universe. And so science came in and said, no, we've got a better answer to that. And so uh, what happened was, and this is a little bit of a side note, what happened was a lot of uh, religions and religious people used their religion to explain scientific things. And then when science came in and said, no, we can answer that differently, then science said, so religion must be wrong. But we're going to look at why religion and science aren't necessarily in conflict here in a second. Um, but the question or the point that they'll make is, hasn't science replaced God, right? There's no need for God anymore. We have science, and that's the, that's the argument they'll make. Um, and so the difference between science and religion for the, for the way that we want to address it okay, is science gives us the method. That is to say, science tells us how something happens, but theology gives us the why. And so when we talk about something like uh, the sun rising, right, uh, you know, an ancient people might say, well, the sun rises because God tells it to rise, okay? Uh, whether or not that's true theologically is fine, but, but scientifically, there's an explanation as to how the sun rises, right? It's because we're spinning around and orbiting around it. So we, we understand the how better through science. But theology tells us the why. And what I mean by that is theology answers questions of purpose. So science says, okay, here's what happened, and now we're going we're gonna to go in and we're going to figure out how that thing happened. If I hold this pin right here, I know that it's going to fall to the table. At what rate, Matt? You know, this is physics. What, what? Yeah, there you go. 9.8 meters per second. I know with, with, with certainty. Oh, wow. Zach just called you out. Wow. 
Oh, man. So, so if I drop this pin, I know with absolute certainty that it's going to drop at that rate, right? And, and I don't have to worry about that, right? I know it's going to drop. There, it, it dropped, right? Um, so science gives us the how. But I can't tell you, I can't tell you what's the purpose for me dropping this pin? Like, what, like why, why, why is this pin falling? That's a very philosophical issue. When, when we start talking about the why and the, the purpose of something, that's more philosophical, and it's theological. So the theology is, hey, there's a purpose behind something, and we want to explain what that is. Science will come in and say, well, if you study, uh, and, I, and I think I've got this on another slide, but, but science will come in and say, hey, if you study the right sciences, you can explain anything. Um, but that actually falls short, and we'll look at why that, that falls short. So that's where, this is where I want to kind of camp out as far as the, the criticisms or the, the arguments against God. What I'm calling the religion of science, and what I'm tr- what the point that I'm trying to make is this. Science is a belief system. That doesn't mean science doesn't have anything um, like certainty, like, like what I just said, like I know with certainty that this is going to fall. Uh, that doesn't mean science is without certainty, but science still in, in requires and invokes belief. And so this is what I, what I mean by that. Um, we look at a question like, how could something come from nothing? How could something come from nothing? That's, that's kind of the, 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 the first um, argument for God, and, we want to, and I'm, I'm going to look at how science seeks to explain uh, that answer. Um, science is going to go, okay, we have an explanation as to where things start. It's the Big Bang. But then you go, well, where, did the, where did the stuff that made the Big Bang come from? And then science goes, oh, maybe, a, maybe an, another universe, right? It's, it's multiverse theory, am I right, Matt? That's multiverse theory, yeah? So, so maybe it came from an older universe. And you go, where did that universe come from? Well, maybe that universe came from an older universe. And so what science does is it says, well, if we go back far enough and far enough and far enough, we can keep doing this, but it never gives us the nothing uh, into something. And they'll look at Christianity and they'll go, well, you, you do the same thing with God, but we, we would say, well, God is, is a different, he's a supernatural being. He's not a universe. He's not a, he's not a physically created thing. And so there's, there's, there's uh, differences in our approach. Um, and, I, and I had a, a list of side-by-sides of how we try to address these same questions, but for time's sake, I cut it out. Um, essentially, the point is, uh, science is a belief system because science seeks to address a lot of the same questions that religion does, okay? And so whether, if science um, fanatics, and I don't want to call them science fanatics, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about people who are atheists and, and their, uh, their basis for atheism is science, um, they will seek to use science to address the same questions that we're trying to address with religion, right? Um, and so uh, we do it in different ways and sometimes conflicting ways and sometimes not in conflicting ways. Sometimes those ways uh, are fine together, um, but what we want to do is show that science is not a complete, uh, a complete f- uh, philosophy for answering things like, well, we can't get uh, the beginning uh, of everything. We can't replicate that. That's just not a scientific question at its core. We can't replicate it. We can't test it. We can't prove it. Um, and in that sense, it's not scientific. But how did everything come into being uh, from absolutely nothing? That might be a theological question. That might be where God comes in. So now as we look at the arguments for God, and this, like I said, this is where I really want to camp out, the first, first being, as I said before, how can we have something from nothing? So what I did here is I just assembled some of, some of what I think are the best arguments. And so uh, you might read some other guy writing a book, or you might talk to some other pastor and say, hey, what, you know, what are the arguments that give you the most confidence that, that God exists? And they might, they might have a different list. Um, so this is definitely uh, my list that I assembled, and if you want to talk about any others or, or have questions about these, like I said, I, I encourage you to ask at the end. But uh, the, yeah, this first argument, how could something come from nothing? Um, 
this is essentially a dead end for science. And so um, this sort of is more about what science can't do than what religion can do. Um, and so I, I would say this is definitely where we, we almost get to shift the burden of proof back to science for, for this, this point and say, how did something come from nothing without God? Okay. Um, uh, the next one is uh, the, I'm sorry, I actually put origin of everything for the same thing. So skip this. Um, it's all the same point. So uh, the next one is the origin of life. The origin of life. How did life come about from non-living matter? And, and so scientists will tell you, hey, uh, we're right on the verge of maybe starting to prove how this happened. Um, but if you can imagine the Grand Canyon and building a bridge across the Grand Canyon, have, have anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? Anybody? And stood on the edge? I mean, it's, it's massive, and you can't actually understand how vast the Grand Canyon is until you're there. But if you stand on that ledge and you go, I'm going to build a, a bridge across the Grand Canyon, that's a scientist saying, I'm going to figure out, I'm going to prove or, or replicate life starting from nothing. And they'll say, hey, we've, we've just started, started that process. And what I, mean, what, what I think they mean by that is, hey, we've cut down a tree, um, we've got a little bit of wood, and we can start building out. That's about how far they've come in that, okay? Um, <laughs> no, this won't take long at all. Um, and so the origin of life then is the, the origin of life then is a very difficult question. And again, this sort of shifts the burden of proof back over to uh, to the atheists. And and I'll, and I'll say this about these arguments: not all of the arguments that I'm going to make uh, are about hey, you prove what you believe, so I don't have to, because um, that tends to be what we call a god of the gaps theory. So where we can't prove something, we call it a gap. And so we just go, well, if there's a gap there in our knowledge, we can't prove it, then that's God. And that's what religion has done for a long time. And, and so as science has come in and been able to prove things that we once thought were just God, like, say, germ theory, right? We, we didn't know why people got sick. We thought it was just because God got mad at them. And then science came in and said, no, there's, there's germs and bacteria and things that cause people to get, get sick. And we went, oh, okay, so, so, so that's not just God um, being angry at someone, right? There's this, this other purpose for it. So we want to be careful um, that we don't, we don't build all of our arguments just on this idea that wherever we can't um, scientifically prove something, it just must be God. And so these arguments are a little bit in that direction, and that not all of my arguments will be, um, but those first two kind of are. And, and so the origin of consciousness, now this is, a, this is an interesting one. Uh, the origin of consciousness, what I mean by that is as a, as a creature who can think about their thoughts, basically. That might be the most simple way I can put it. Something or someone that can think about their own thoughts. So if I'm sad, and I go, why am I sad? What's making me sad? That's, that's what I mean by consciousness. So animals... Can, can feel emotion. They can feel sad. Like if you ever, when, when I leave the house and my dog um, is looking at me sad that I'm leaving, I know my, my dog can feel sadness, but what my dog can't do is go, why am I sad? And sit and examine her sadness, right? My dog's incapable of that, okay? And so when I say consciousness, that's what I mean. And, and, and I'll go ahead and throw in with consciousness, I'll, I'll go, and, go ahead and throw in ingenuity. Ingenuity or creativity, the ability to make something, to problem solve, go, you know, the bridge, like to build a bridge, a complex bridge, to build civilizations, okay? Those things are common to man and man alone, not animals, okay? And so when we look at, when we look at evolutionary biology, um, when, when, a, when an evolutionary biologist tells me, hey, life started at this point and then evolved into this, I, I go, okay, I can... I can wrap my head around how evolution works, okay? I can understand why it's a viable explanation. But, but I can't get around the origin of life part, like natural selection can't explain that part, and it can't explain this giant gap in our consciousness and our ingenuity between our closest 
evolutionary ancestor, or the, the apes, right, or our, our, our relatives, and, and us, right? So, so these animals have a lot in common when it comes to the way they think, um, their psychology, uh, but then you have this huge gap, and then humans. And that is a gap that science has yet to explain. They don't know uh, where consciousness comes from. They don't understand uh, how that works. And that gap is so vast that I look at that and I go, there's just, there's just no way uh, that there was not some sort of intervention from a god to bring about consciousness, okay? Um, and so uh, that's, that's sort of the third argument. Uh, this, I think, uh, is, is arguably the best point that I've heard um, and seen and read and, and, and explored for the existence of God. And it's this, where does morality come from? Where does morality come from? Now, now atheists have their points, and, and believers have their points. Um, I'm going to start with uh, some Richard Dawkins quotes, okay? I'm gonna, I want to show you, this is an atheist's explanation uh, or an atheist's uh, way of approaching morality, okay? So Richard Dawkins said this, let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish. And what I think is really remarkable about this quote is Dawkins just agreed with the Bible, and he doesn't like to do that very much. Um, the Bible says that we are inherently evil, that we need uh, redemption. And Dawkins says, yeah, we're born selfish. That's, a, that's a, the natural state into which we're born. But, but he would say that's biological, not, uh, not a state of sin. It's not a spiritual thing, it's a biological thing. He also says, uh, and these are separate quotes, I think they might have all come from the same book called The Selfish Gene, but, but I didn't actually source all of them. Um, but he says, don't kid yourself that you're going to live again after you're dead. You're not. Make the most of the one life you've got. Live it to the full. So what I want you to do is I want you to see a problem in his philosophy so far. He said, you're born selfish, and so we need to teach people to be good. But he's also said, live life to the fullest. Well, what if, what if living life to the fullest for me is not doing what you say is good? What if it's taking advantage of people? And we'll look at that here in a second as well. Um, finally, he says, evil is a miscellaneous collection of nasty things that nasty people do. Now, I don't think anybody in here would, would necessarily disagree. I don't think we would necessarily disagree, but that is a very, very vague and weak definition of something uh, that requires a whole lot more of a definition than he gave it. To say evil is nasty is a really easy thing to say. Anybody can say that. Hey, don't be mean to someone else. That's, that's cruel. Yeah, everybody knows that, but why? Where does that come from? And so the, oftentimes an atheist falls very short in explaining that. Um, so, so looking at the problems with this way of thinking, we go back to, as long as you're not hurting anyone, it's okay. As long as you're not, that, that's a, a secular morality. So the world around you right now is, is growing more and more secularized. Now, you're, you're still kind of in the Bible Belt. There's still a lot of religious people around you. But the world at large is growing more and more secular. That means they're more and more moving away from religion and religious uh, morality, religious uh, philosophy and ways of thinking. Um, and so this is, this is a, a secular way of approaching morality where they say, as long as you're not hurting anyone, it's okay. That's how we've justified all kinds of things that are going on around you right now. As long as you're not hurting anyone, it's okay. Uh, and then we go back to Dawkins' quote, life, uh, live life to the fullest, but, but then they'll tell you, unless full means hurting someone. So they have to, they have to start, start moving things around, okay? We can't, we can't do it this way uh, once it runs into another uh, morality point that we make. And, and these are arbitrary. We're, gonna just, we're just going to move them uh, as we please. If it, if it starts to hurt you, um, 
then, then I'll stop doing it. But what if I only have two choices here? There's a study done in Maryland recently, or, a, or, a, or a, it was more of a social experiment done in Maryland recently. Uh, after the Katrina hurricane hit New Orleans, um, there were people in, hosp- in, in hospitals dying because they couldn't get help, okay? And what the, the, the nurses and the doctors were faced with was we have this many people on life support and we only have so much oxygen and machines to sustain life for, for so long. And so what they had to start doing was making really, really awful decisions. Who's gonna get life support and who's not? And they had to go, that's, it's called triage. That's what, that's what when you, if you've heard the word triage or the hospital, that's what they're talking about. It's this idea of, of making decisions about who's gonna receive what medical attention. And they, they've gotta figure out, hey, why are we gonna give this person medical attention and not this person? Who's gonna, are we gonna give it to the, to the old and the weak? Are we going to say no? Because if they get healthy, then they can't help us with the rest. So we're going to go for the people who can help us once, once we've got them healthy again. Are we going to, are we going to try and save the, most numbers, uh, uh, the, the highest number of years of life left? Like, how are we going to address that? And so, so a, a secular morality runs out of, of uh, anything to stand on once we get to questions, deep questions like this. How do you save one person uh, over another? If two decisions hurt people and you've only got two choices, how do you make that decision? Because do, do something as long as it's not hurting anyone runs out real fast when you've got a decision like that. And so these are moral issues that a secular morality, a senseless, uh, baseless morality uh, cannot address. And so that's, that's sort of the problem. Uh, oh, I missed some slides here. So um, I apologize. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how those, maybe they got out of order, but uh, I'll try and move on. Um, so, so Richard Dawkins, going back to Richard Dawkins, uh, his, his point with morality is this, this is biological. This is something that evolution has built into us. And I want to make this point just uh, before we move on to the final one, uh, that, that our, our instincts for survival are what have turned into morality. And so you'll see uh, what, what might be called uh, self-preservation. So, so when, you, when you look in nature and you see, let's, let's say, a, a lion, a male lion, killing the cubs of another male lion because... He wants uh, to, to take that pride, and he wants his genes to, to live on, and so uh, he's going elim- to eliminate, he's gonna eliminate the, the other uh, lion cubs so that he can, he can have his genes live on, and so there's this selfishness within him, and that's an instinct that he's developed over, over time and evolution. And then you'll see, just sticking with the, the African plains, you might see a, a herd of water buffalo um, protect uh, one calf, like the, the whole herd will put themselves at risk to, to chase away a predator to save one calf. And so that's what we call the herd mentality. And, and what an evolutionary biologist would say is that's, that's a morality sort of developed over time. It's instinct. It's self-preservation or it's, it's uh, species preservation. It's her, the herd mentality. And so we as humans just have an advanced form of that. But what, what Lewis came in and said, C.S. Lewis, and we, you know, we did the C.S. Lewis study this summer, and one of, the, one of the really great things that he does in Mere Christianity is sort of deconstruct this argument. And what Lewis said, essentially, is that we have urges. We have what we would call instincts. Um, and, and when we look at those instincts, we see that sometimes an instinct is good and sometimes it's bad. But we don't have any instincts that are always good and always bad. So morality is not an instinct. Sometimes uh, we have an instinct that would say uh, that we need to, say, fight someone. And most of the time, it's good to suppress uh, the need to fight someone or the instinct to fight someone. But if we go to war and we need to protect someone, uh, then it's good to, to take on that instinct, to, to run with it and to fight and to defend someone. Uh, but we see different times when, when certain instincts 
uh, are good and when, when uh, they're bad at other times. And so Lewis kind of takes this idea that, that morality is instinctive and evolutionary, and he says, no, it can't be that. It has to be something else. And if you have more questions about how that works, uh, please ask me later. Um, and then the final, the final uh, point that I'll, that I'll make, and this is the one that I think brings me a lot of comfort, but it's not necessarily one uh, that, that would work in a debate with a non-believer, uh, but it does bring comfort to me, and I think it can bring comfort to you. It's this. Um, the Christian worldview is a complete worldview. What I mean by that is when I take Scripture, and, and if, you, if you imagine Scripture sort of like a pair of glasses, and what it says um, it helps me to see the world Clearly, and if I take the glasses, the lenses of Scripture, and I put them up and I look at the world around me, it makes sense. It makes sense. What the, what the Scriptures tell me uh, about human nature, what they tell me about um, how, how people function, about how societies function, about how things have happened and will continue to happen, I take that and I look around and I go, yeah, that, that lines up pretty accurately. One of my, one of my friends once told me that he, he, uh, when he loves his wife the way that the Bible tells him to love his wife, he goes, that's, that's the best way to love my wife. So he essentially takes the commands of Scripture and he goes, if I live that way, I'm going to go out and I'm going to live that way. And then I live that way and I go, yeah, this is how I'm supposed to live. The Bible, know, when God gave us commandments in the Bible, when he told us how we ought to live, he, go, he went, hey, I know how you're wired. I know how you're, how you're supposed to function. I created you. And so, so I'm going to tell you the best way that you uh, can live your life in, the, in a way that, that glorifies me, that lives, that, that lives out your purpose. And so when we do that, we go, yeah, this is, I am living out my purpose. I have found what I'm supposed to do. And so the Christian worldview then is the most complete worldview that I've found. That when I live my life uh, by, by the, the Bible and the, the word of God, I see that that is where my life is supposed to be. Um, and finally, uh, when, we, when we think about you know, moving forward, living in confidence of these things, I just want to say a couple of things. Number one, uh, there's a lot of good reason uh, to believe in the existence of God. Uh, we haven't, like I said, we haven't even scratched the surface uh, of what we could have talked about, both on, on the side of atheism and on the side of belief. So um, there's lots and lots more that we could talk about. I would love to, to talk to you about that if that's something that you want to talk about. I've got a lot of resources, a lot of books um, that, that I could recommend and things like that. So, uh, but, I, but I want you to know there is good reason uh, to believe in the existence of God. And we've, like I said, we've scratched the surface a little bit here tonight. But there is good reason. The other thing is as you engage with non-believers, when you engage with people uh, who don't agree with you, we need to remember, uh, again, like we said in the, in the first lesson, we need to remember to do so with gentleness and respect. Um, we, we, we have truth on our side, but that doesn't give us the right to talk down to people, uh, to be condescending. Um, and we need to engage with people in a loving way. We need to be able to have civil conversations with them. And, uh, and I think that'll always uh, go a long way in helping us not only uh, reach out to them, but to see what they're saying and to understand their side of things as well.